Welcome to Art More Than Ever. Printmaking is the most democratic of all art forms. I can give my work away and feel okay about it. It still has my hand. I've touched every single one of them. It's not the one-off hoarded by the fine artist. That's Adam Del Marcel, a graduate of the Graphic Design MFA program at VCFA and the founder of a project called What Heroin Sounds Like, based in his hometown of Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Adam didn't mean to be the founder of this project. He didn't even really want to be. But in 2014, Adam's brother died of a heroin overdose. And ever since then, he's devoted his art and his life to starting conversations about the opioid epidemic. It started as a guerrilla print campaign, and he's added massive projections trained on buildings around his hometown, and he doesn't hold any punches. His work is highly critical of his local government's management of the crisis, and the images are sometimes difficult to look at. For instance, one projection shows a series of faces in various states of shooting up and overdose. It provokes reaction, which is the goal. Here's Adam Del Marcel. Do you remember first impulses to make things? Do you have a? Do you remember when you started feeling compelled to make things? I, I don't think I have. A, I mean, I think it's a compulsion that you have. So if you're going to be a maker, I think it's a compulsion. Um, so I made ever since I was a small child, and then, and then I went through high school and struggled through high school. I didn't really like to be there. It was not something I really wanted to do, but I did art and I had that and it got me through. Uh, I went to art school and dropped out to work in a sculpture foundry of all places. Um, and I ended up working with kind of these huge name artists as a 20-year-old. Um, but then I also became completely disheartened with the business nature of art. Uh, and sculpture is the biggest business of all of them. It's so expensive. Um, and you end up working with agents of artists. And I think you grow up with a concept of what being an artist might look like or might be. And I think it feels like this... Uh, freeing expression you can kind of make the things you want to make and um and and when you get closer to the business side of that you find out that it's not that way at all and when it comes to things like uh like sculpture i mean to start to work with more conceptual artists that are uh, more about the concept and they're hiring what they consider craftspeople to make this work um and then at the end of the day it would be signed by the artist that paid for it it would go to paris and sell for $10 million. So there's a, and we're making $8 an hour doing this. Um, so it is a, uh, at 20 years of age, I didn't understand that at all. And now at 40, I really don't understand that at all. <laughs> so it hasn't gotten any better. So I took probably about 10 year hiatus from making things um, until through the social work uh, uh, jobs that I was doing during that time. Um, some of the kids that I was working with, we were doing art therapy type things and they, I had a chance to draw and they're like, why aren't you doing something with this? And like, after all that time of just being disconnected from it, um, I was like, yeah, why aren't I doing something with this? Um, so I went back to school and you know, this is where we're at now. I wonder if you can tell the story of what happened to your brother. Um, in early 2014, my brother came to live with us cause him and his wife were having some issues. Um, and now he's also, uh, was a social worker himself was, you know, college educated, um, the epitome of fitness. I mean, he just like, he took care of himself massively. But anyways, he was staying with us. Um, and uh, on September 19th of 2014, I woke up in the morning. Um, I went about my day. Uh, the, my morning, checked my emails, did all the things I normally do. And I noticed that he wasn't up yet. 
Um, so I, let, I still let it be because I, I wanted him to have his privacy. I didn't want him to feel like I was imposing or checking up on him or something. But eventually it got a little later in the morning and I knocked on the door. He didn't answer and I went in and he wasn't there. Um, he wasn't in his bed. So I was like, okay, he just didn't come home last night. Um, and as I turned to leave, he was on the floor. And he was face down on the floor, so I grabbed his hand, and I knew that he was gone. So I'm screaming. I'm, you know, totally in shock. And everyone, I have no idea what happened. Um, so I had to call 911, and they had to have me try to give him CPR, even though I knew that he was gone. I mean, he was obviously gone. I rolled him over, and he was... I mean, I can't even describe what he looked like. He was gone. Um, so the police came, and they ushered me downstairs. Um, and after, I, I don't know how long time it was, half an hour maybe, an officer came down and started to kind of interrogate me on the spot. Like, just tell us what happened. We know that you know. These things, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm in shock. I mean, my brother was my, that's the other thing too. I mean, my brother was my absolute best friend. So anyways... Um, I'm getting interrogated in the kitchen and he's like, well, you know that he was a heroin addict. I don't even know how to respond to that. Like I had no, I still don't believe that that's even a possibility. Like, I mean, I, I worked with people struggling with addiction, um, in the emergency room and I saw none of that in my brother at all. So then I had to go to my mother's house. She lived, you know, blocks from my house and tell her that he was gone. And then we had to kind of figure out what was going to happen next. And it's, I mean, I'm still in shock. And this is, this has now been three years and I still, um, we're still trying to figure out what it means to be normal. So after your brother's death, how did um, what heroin sounds like get born? My brother is a catalyst for this work. But this work isn't so much about him anymore, is that it's about how the system is responding to this issue. I mean, within a couple of hours of my bro me finding my brother, I was at my parents' house now, and uh, the detective that was in charge of his case called to question me on some things. And at this point, I'm still in shock, and I'm starting to get angry now, and I'm like, we have to find out where this heroin came from. We need to kick fucking doors in. Like, we have to do something. And he said to me, I need to lower my expectations. I've seen hundreds of these, and there's nothing remarkable about your brother's death. That's on day one. So how far do you think that investigation was going to go? It went, and it went nowhere. Um, there's a massive attitude that they've already seen everything before, so we need to back off, which is just not true. I mean, this is, in American history, we've never seen anything like this. I mean, we lo we've lost now more people this year um, then we lost in 1994, which was the worst year of the AIDS epidemic. And I think a lot, a lot of reason why um, things aren't getting investigated and things aren't changing is because stigma is just such a huge part of that. So after what sounds like uh, insensitive bungling of the law enforcement yeah. after mm -hmm. his death, how did the project kind of come to be? How did? How, what was this? What's the story of the well, beginning? I mean. I started making as a compulsion to make and deal with my grief. Like I didn't, I didn't start this as some type of movement that I was trying to accomplish. Um, so what I was doing is I was, I'm a printmaker. So I was making print after print after print about 
my experience and my family's experience specifically, not knowing what that work was going to be used for other than I felt like it was my way of kind of dealing with this, even though it wasn't really, dealing is a bad word because it wasn't, it wasn't helping anything. It was just, I had to get these stories out. So, I mean, after about six months of making, I had designed 40 pieces of artwork. I probably printed three or 4,000 posters and they were just, they were engulfing my home. Um, to the point where like I was getting suffocated by the work. So I was like, now I have to do something with this. I can't, like, I have to purge this. I wonder about that um, relationship between um, grief and creativity. Mm-hmm. As you say, it's not that it made it better, but I, I, I can imagine that for some people, the urge to make would not happen at that time. So it's interesting that some that there was a light switch that went on for you after the in the in the middle of this tremendous grief. Yeah, well, it's I mean, you have to understand. For me, also, it's it's the process of making. Once I mean, and, and this is true of all my work, not just the work that I'm doing for this, but when I am working is when I feel my best. When I'm finished with a piece, I'm massively depressed and down. Um, and that that's been consistent for my entire life with making this work even more so now. So. Be, and that's why printmaking is printmaking. There's a monotonous kind of repetitiveness to it that is like, it's almost like um, meditation in, in some ways. Can you describe the process of printmaking and what that what that looks like, what it smells like, like what what that is? Oh sure. Well, I mean that's I, I'm a screen printer. Uh, I start with the drawing that I do by hand. Um, I take it into the computer to clean it up. I love I love the idea of taking things in and out of media. I do a lot of um, drawing and then uh, maybe manipulating digitally and then bringing it back out and doing more handwork. So it's just really nice back and forth. And then there's just the physical act of having to make a screen, like burn. So you make a, a film positive on acetate. Um, and then you have to use like very specific tools to be able to coat your screen with photosensitive materials. And that has a smell to it that is just I can't. It's it's kind of like it's almost like an Elmore's glue smell. So it's a kid thing to it, um, which I really like. Like the physical aspect of pulling the squeegee and pulling the ink and making the prints. Like that's the easy part. There's a lot of lead up to get to that point for you to be able to then run by hand a thousand prints. And um, from conception to early sketches to production to distribution, I can do all of that. I control all of that. Um, and that's a really that's the reason why uh, screen printing and printmaking is an activist tool because it's just something we can control from start to finish. Given what you said about uh, that your house was filled to overflowing with stuff, is that when what heroin sounds like was born? Not not quite yet. So what happened was um, it, it was August, and um, we were getting the, my brother passed away in September, no, September nineteenth. So his his anniversary was the second year of his death was coming. So I made the decision. I was like, I'm going to put all of these out on the date of his passing, with no expectation. Like honestly, I my what I thought would happen is I would go and hang these, and they would just be there and rot off, and no one would notice. Um, so um, with a, a couple of my, my, my older brother and a couple of other friends of mine, we took like a thousand posters to, and just hung them all over our city for like five hours, like every telephone pole, every light center. And we did it in a very uh, not destructive way because, I mean, I love my city, so I wasn't going to wheat paste posters on walls and things. That would defeat the purpose of what I was trying to do. At night? Yeah, at nighttime. So we went out around eight o'clock, got done around midnight, um, had a beer for my brother and then uh, went, went home. The next morning, I got up, I had to leave. I was teaching the next morning, and I saw the work was still there. 
and all of a sudden like on social media I saw people starting to talk about it a little bit like what where did this stuff come from the police the, a lot of the work was very critical of the, of the way my family was handled um, so my my idea too after I put them out like even that night I was like I'm going to make some more I'm going to do this again in a, in a month and not let anybody know who's doing this and just see how long we can let this ride while building this momentum um, and then what happened is the police started to harass some other local artists thinking it was their work so I came forward and let them know that it was me that was doing it. And then two days, three days after the pieces went up, the chief of police had his street officers go out and destroy all of the work off of the street. And they did it citing an ordinance that you can't hang on standard, light standards or telephone poles, which, okay, that's fine. But what they did is they tore down all of my work around every other thing that was up in the city. So they didn't tear down any of the other, like, local band is going to be here signs or yard sale signs or all those other things. So what they did is they discriminated against me um, while citing an ordinance that I was breaking the law. So it really had nothing to do with the ordinance and everything to do with the message. They just didn't want it to get out there. But the problem, what was really great about it was that because they went and decided to destroy it, it made the work more important. So it ended up being this like catalyst to understand that maybe, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, like art does have the ability to save lives. But there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that that's true. Let's talk about the lexicon about or the, the the terms. I mean, is this an awareness campaign? Has this become? Does it matter what we call this? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, th- I think depending on who I speak to now, now I'm starting to speak. Like I'll coin it towards who I'm talking to. Like I do think design activism is the next movement in graphic design. Like uh, although we've been doing it forever, the best art is activist art, right? I think an artist at their core, if they're doing their jobs correctly. They're documenting what it means to be alive during their time. That's why when we're having this conversation, it's hard for me to get back to the art aspect of it because honestly, all the art is is a vehicle to drive the message. I will make pieces to pull you in and then I'm going to hold you hostage and we're going to talk about the issue. That's that's the focus of what it is. Um, so it ends up being not so much about what I'm making um, as, the, as the conversations or the questions. I think our work has to be compelling the viewers to ask questions, not calls to action so much, but more calls to question. The name of what you're doing is has the word sound in it. Mm-hmm. You know, what heroin sounds like. What is the sound of heroin? It's the, it's the stories. I mean, that, that's, that's, where it, that's where it lies. It's the stories of the families. I mean, it's the stories of those struggling. And it's, it's not the sound of the bureaucrats trying to figure this out behind closed doors and not approaching the people that can actually give them the solutions. Um, obviously, my, my flat work doesn't speak, um, but there's lots of conversation that comes out of that. And that's all that matters to me is that, you know, one conversation spawns from one of those pieces. I mean, you have no idea how far a ripple will go. It started as printmaking mm-hmm. and you've moved into projection how yes. did that transition happen well i mean it was just a response i did this flat work and i'm a printmaker um but it kept getting torn down um so thinking about now what is the next iteration of this how, how can i do this work and not have it be torn down i get to decide when it goes up and when it comes down so projection ended up being kind of like the next phase of that and i and i started small i started collecting um old slide projectors because people just get rid of them. So I was doing indoor installations with slide projectors and reel-to-reel audio tapes of like loops of like 911 calls and things. Um, But the problem with that was, and I I did a gallery show this summer and it just didn't feel right. That work didn't belong in a gallery. 
it needed to it needed to have to live outside. It needed to live on the street. Only a certain class is going in there, you know, and they're and seeking that out, uh, and purposely. I mean, they those galleries only want certain people in there too. They're not galleries are not beacons of inclusion in in any way. <laughs> I mean, it's it's all about exclusion. Um, so I did that, and I and um, and I also did when I was doing that, I started a GoFundMe campaign. So part of the reason why I did it in the gallery is I had a computer in there with a GoFundMe up so people could help start to fund this idea that I was going to get a bigger projector, which is what I wanted to get. And it worked. I mean, in about a month, I raised like $5,000. So I was able to get this huge venue projector. And then I started doing the outdoor projections with the idea that then there's like the, the philosophical like idea, like if the police come and block the light, now it's a whole nother thing we can talk about, like in a much deeper way. Um, and that hasn't happened. No one's stopped me yet. Can you describe what the projections are? I, I, mm-hmm. I, I found them unbelievably disturbing, mm-hmm. in, um, and I wasn't even there. <laughs> so can you, can you talk about what, what the projections are? Yeah, the, I mean, the very first one that I worked on, um, it's, a, uh, it's a time lapse of, of, of kind of a face going through the stages of shooting up to nodding off to overdosing and then going through the stages of liver mortis, um, which is... Um, my brother went through that. So when I had turned him over, he was just the most terrible shade of purple. Um, so it was one of those things that I I didn't want to see that. I didn't necessarily want anyone else to have to see that. But I also felt compelled that, like, this is what it looks like. So, so yeah, so that's one of the projections. And then a lot of them are, end up being really just typographic. Uh, I start, I, and, and there's, so there's some that are geared towards, like, that are geared towards the police, like, but I also have messages like, you know, addiction minus stigma equals change. So I have a lot of this kind of like this plus this we could equal this or does equal this. So simple messages that can be, I think it makes people compelled to ask questions. I'm not really trying to give answers. I'm just trying to leave them with um, something that they can hopefully question after they leave the work. Why do I care about drug addicted people? That's a great question. That's a great question because I mean, okay, so so when we say addict, which first off, that's something like I'm trying to, and I think every, if, if we can have one takeaway from anybody that listens to this podcast, is that addict. When we say addict, all of us, even those that have done this work and kind of know what the real face of it looks like, we still have an idea in our mind as to what that looks like. It's someone with scabs and it's itching themselves and is disheveled and gaunt. Um, and that's just not the face of this epidemic. I mean, like I said, my brother looked like Mr. Universe. He prided himself on this physical appearance. Um, it's the kid next door, the 15-year-old kid next door. It's the local doctor or nurse. It's not socioeconomic. It has no, it has no defined face anymore. Yeah, it's like, like I said, this is a time in American history that we've never seen. So this idea, um, like, so why do we care? We need to care because it's breathing on our doorstep and we don't know it. And I don't want you to have to find out by walking into a room in the middle of the morning and finding the person that you care about most in the world dead on the floor. What is your, I mean, when your brother died, Unbeknownst to you, I mean, you you weren't aware of this right away, but you're a kind of a kind of life mission was born. Is that true? Yeah, and it's all it's also something that I'm massively massively conflicted about because um, some of the work that I'm getting recognized for 
I wouldn't have done if he didn't go. Um, so there's a huge part of me that is very aware of that and very guilty about that. Now I'm getting better because I've been openly talking to my family about that. And I come up here to, to the Vermont College of Fine Art and talk to my peers about this. And and I can only, the I, I, way I justify now is that this work isn't so much about my brother Joe any, anymore. I mean, it, of course it is. It's honoring him. Um, but he, through this terrible thing, gave me something that I can... I can wrap my arms around and try to do something about. It. I can't. I can't have him here. So, um, the, all I can do is try to be as truthful as I can, document what I'm seeing to maybe help someone else. It's just this vehicle that helps to drive this message. It allows me to talk to someone like you about this and hope that maybe something that comes out of this allows someone to ask a question. That was Adam Delmarcel. To learn more about Adam and what heroin sounds like, visit our website at vcfa.edu. We'll have links to his work and more information about Adam up on the website. The music for this show was written and produced by Scott Barkin, a graduate of the VCFA Composition Program. If you like the show, please consider making a comment on iTunes that helps new listeners find the show. This is Art More Than Ever. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>